As Robin reads this, what I'm going to share is um, the history of this scripture and the reason I chose it for this morning was that this was one of the kind of seminal pieces of scripture for me growing up. It, it just beyond my 18th birthday went um, to a Young Life camp in Malibu, Canada. Uh, and that was a piece of transformation. And what was incredible to me was that the speaker at that camp, week-long camp, had memorized 2 Timothy and was able to quote chapter and verse no matter. You could tr- we tried to trick him. We tried to challenge him. And he could come back with that epistle and interpret it in ways that were phenomenal for this 18-year-old way back then. But this... This section, this kind of prelude to that letter to this young protege has been inspirational to me in ways that this go well beyond being 18. So as Robin reads, see if you can find maybe some of those places where it could be inspirational. I am grateful to God, whom I worship with a clear conscience, as my ancestors did when I remember you constantly in my prayers, night and day. Recalling your tears, I long to see you so that I may be filled with joy. I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that has lived first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now, I am sure, lives in you. For this reason, I remind you to rekindle the gift of God that is within you, through the laying on of my hands. For God did not give us a spirit of cowardice, but rather a spirit of power and of love and of self-discipline. Do not be ashamed, then, of the testimony about our Lord or of me, his prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel, relying on the power of God who saved us and called us with a holy calling, and according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace. This grace was given to us by Christ Jesus before the ages began, but it has now been revealed through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. For this gospel, I was appointed a herald and an apostle, and a teacher, and for this reason I suffer as I do. But I am not ashamed, for I know the one in whom I have put my trust, and I am sure that he is able to guard until that day what I have entrusted to him. Hold to the standard of sound teaching that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Guard the good treasure entrusted to you with the help of the Holy Spirit living in us. You then, my child, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Obviously, it's going to be a little different this morning. I'm not going to wander. Uh, I'm going to use my notes and stick very, very closely to them. And to some extent, what I'm going to do is read them. It would be way too easy to venture off into a lot of different kind of avenues as I share my faith story with you. But where I want to begin is to remind you that at the end of last week, I asked a question. And the question was, what does it mean to be saved? What does it mean 
to be saved. And that will be underneath everything that I share with you today. Today we focus on faith and on one story. The message today isn't going to be some pastoral instruction about how to find faith. Stewardship, as you heard last week, is about seeing ourselves as caretakers. The most powerful and often most poignant and profound areas of any stewardship focus is on the stories told by those influenced and impacted by the organization. So this morning... I thought I would humbly take this chance to give you a little insight into how the church and those who saw themselves as stewards of faith influenced my life. I simply ask for your patience, and I have to share with you in second service, I find this much more difficult in second service than I did at first. I think partly because how often, I I mean, I don't ever remember a pastor as I grew up sitting up in front of a congregation and sharing his or her faith story, mostly his in my growing up years. And so there are certain expectations that often happen with a pastor in a congregation, particularly in a traditional service. And so I I just have to share that with you, that I have a little more feeling of intimidation by this service, and I want to invite you all to go down rather than just looking at my back, because I'm not going to move around, and as much as this stool swivels, it would make it more challenging. So I simply ask for your patience. Don't forget the scripture that you've heard It is the opening remarks from my favorite epistle, 2 Timothy. I want to first talk about God, in my opinion. For God, for me, God is not, and my class heard this, my classes heard this last week. For for me, God is not some king with a long white beard sitting on some throne with some big book that tracks all of our mistakes. Nor is God a force that chooses a few and rejects everyone else. I have to be honest, I could not place my faith in anything like that, and my story will attest to why. For me, God is a profound force that continually moves all of us toward a greater good. It becomes more powerful if we intentionally open ourselves to it, and yet God works around us whether we're open to it or not. God is ever-present, ever-present. God does not go away from us ever, ever. It's why I'm here, and for all practical purposes, I should not be sitting here before you. Not given the events of my earlier life, and particularly over a two-year period, but I'll share a few examples of that in just a second. First, let me share that I think for many of us, this wooing God is more obvious as we look back on our lives. Sometimes it's hard for us to recognize God around us and the force that is Christ around us at the present, sometimes. That wooing present, for me, wasn't necessarily what most would call miraculous. It was, however, deeply embracing, and the embraces were centered in the people God placed before and around me. It's part of what makes me Wesleyan. I do believe in this wooing God, who is constantly a force that is around us, working so that we might recognize the desire for relationship. After breaking my neck and being paralyzed in a serious ski accident, I went through a time of incredible depression. Everything had changed. Everything with which I self-identified, those things that had made me me, or at least that was my perception, were now gone. I had thought, as many of us do at this age, that I was immortal. I thought that I couldn't be hurt. I thought that I could do anything. And all of that changed 
in a literal split second. I certainly didn't recognize my own need for any other change. I thought I was doing just fine. But I also have to share with you that in no way do I believe that God was in any way involved or the cause of that ski accident. Any way at all. Especially to serve some point. I've heard that way too much in life and in ministry. So please don't go there this morning. But after the accident, I had become paralyzed and paralyzed on so many levels. I had no feeling in my left side. As I healed from that injury, I became angry, vengeful, egocentric, negatively focused, a terribly unhealthy young adult without much hope. The world owed me, I believe. God owed me, and I was going to find ways to make it and God pay. I could tell you that those feelings were deep, exceptionally unhealthy, and motivated by some really tough behaviors. In the midst of it all, God saw something more and sent grace in a multitude of sizes, ages, and shapes. Most were surprises. It began with a strong Christian Catholic boss who forgave me. And be careful with that word, forgave. Jack had given me an opportunity to kind of begin again. Jack saw me for who I was, and my response to him and to that company was, I stole from them. And the theft was very significant. I stole from them, from him. He could have reacted in any number of ways, but what he did was provide an opportunity for a future for this young man by a applying appropriate consequences rather than prosecution. He provided love and grace beyond judgment. He provided hope when I didn't think there was any. The details of all of this are, this are unimportant, but I will share with you, I deserved prosecution, and it would have changed my life, and I would not be sitting here before you, obviously. I look back on Jack Weeks, and that was his name, as one of God's first wooing servants and the one who really began to save my life. As I said, it could have turned out so differently. Believe me, there were consequences. Don't believe, and I'm looking at Bud right now because I know what you would be saying, I think. But there were significant consequences in the midst of this, and it took two years to pay back everything. But I did. But it could have been so different. Jack Weeks was the first. Mike Bigley was the next, and I've talked about Mike a fair amount. He was a log cabin builder, did not believe in the use of power tools. He was an amazingly gifted forester and timber cruiser, and he taught me what patience and craftsmanship and apprenticeship is all about. He was a strong Christian and yet humble and not overly overt, who in his own humble way shared his life, his skills, his struggles, and most importantly, his faith with me. He took the grace and forgiveness I'd learned from Jack Weeks and took it deeper. He made it come alive in creation, and it's where I really found peace in the woods. Because I knew how to read them and understand them and saw the miracle that is the forests of the Pacific Northwest. It changed me, or it began to anyway. It went well beyond skills and building and turned into the beginning development of life skills. And then came my grandmother. She came back in my life about this time, and she is who Cora is named after. She is Cora's namesake. 
She became a much stronger presence in my life. She would call me on occasion, and, and she would say, God told me that I should call you today. And so I am, and I wondered if you could come over. And I would go at, to Wesley Holmes in Des Moines, and I would sit at her feet, and I would hear her talk about God and God's gracious love. Cora Bell Beeman had a tremendous influence on me, and we still have the chair that she sat in in every one of those times sitting upstairs in the parsonage. And I'll go sit there every once in a while if I just need a little wisdom and hope and grace. And in the midst of it all, I met Tim Biglow, and Tim taught me how to be a servant in the midst of phenomenal challenges. Tim's kidneys didn't work. He was in dialysis three to four times a week, sometimes five times a week. It's what kept him alive. He became a best friend who patiently showed me a different path in life. It began with our shared love of music and turned to a time in the mountains where if you know of anyone in dialysis who is on dialysis, they can't breathe. John, they make you look like a marathoner. And, and they can't get enough breath, and so they huff and puff and huff and puff, and yet we would climb mountains together. And he taught me what patience and perseverance was all about. It was an amazing gift. And from there, then, Tim and I began to share some other things. He showed me how to be in camps and to do those kinds of things. He, he showed me what it meant to serve God and serve youth. And he was so patient, even in times where we codeine camps together for younger children and then youth and then even some young adults. Then it took form as a family, the Peterson family. Ken was the senior pastor at Tacoma First Church, and he gave me my first opportunity to work with youth, but not just any youth. Kids with the same kinds of attitudes I had not one or two years earlier. They were tough gang kids from the hilltop in Tacoma. A bunch of tackle football without pads ensued. Two concussions later, in a lot of conversations about life turned into transformation, theirs and mine, and I learned that even, even I had something to offer someone. In so many ways, it began with that family and took me in and that took me in and surrounded me as I finally ventured more fully into life, and then into youth ministry, and even in the midst of that, into a construction business. Then I got the strangest call, and I shared this with my classes last Wednesday. I got a call from Reverend Larry Eddings who was the pastor over beyond Bremerton in Silverdale. And Larry called me out of the blue, and I, I, I heard his name, and I, I suddenly began to panic because he was the father of one of my ex-girlfriends. <laughs> Did I mention that I was not overly kind and somewhat took advantage of folks and, and just was not a very healthy person? So, so I heard Larry, and, I, and immediately, you know, you get that, your heart begins to race. And, um, but Larry, Larry said... I. God asked me to come and have you come and see me. God laid something on my heart, and I need to pray for you. And so would you be willing to come over? And I did. I went over, and it was one of the most significant aspects of the change that began that day. It was a much deeper understanding of God, the power of God, God's grace working through a pastor, Larry. He prayed for me in a way that I, no one has ever prayed for me before. I sat in a kneeler in the chapel at Silverdale United Methodist Church, and he laid hands on me. It's the first time I'd ever had that done. That prayer lasted for three and a half hours. 
it felt like two minutes. And what Larry did in the midst of that was he pulled things out of my soul and said them out loud and said, Brad, now release these things to God. Here's what now I see, and now I need you to release these things to God. And the power that was flowing through me was unbelievable. Unbelievable. And at the end, he said, I believe in this power, but what you need to do now that we've emptied this is I need to fill it with something more. Are you willing to have your life be filled with something more than what has been there before? And he prayed for the infilling of the Holy Spirit. And I will tell you, friends, I have never experienced anything like that. I walked out of there literally feeling like a newborn baby. And all of life was ahead of me. And I wish I could say that everything went positive at that point. It's hard to change old habits. It is. But that prayer showed me a level of grace in a God that loved someone even like me that I had never experienced before. I believed for the first time that I was loved by God. What unfolded for those next 10 years after that was a lot of life, a lot of construction and building, a lot of edgy ministry with youth, a lot of camps and retreats, and a lot of growth on so many levels. Then came the next phase, and God was still there, surrounding, wooing, encouraging, and still nudging me toward more. Unless we believe that God only works through the crises of our lives, I need to share this. Sitting right back there, as I said before, was Robert Braun. And Robert was one of the youth leaders in Cupertino, California at Good Samaritan United Methodist Church. And I've told the story of what created a CBS television special around the life of a 16-year-old named Bridget. And sitting in the sanctuary, I got to interview her. Sitting in the sanctuary that day were, were every major of the major business communities of... And this was Silicon Valley in the 80s, friends. Apple and, I mean, so many places... Even the aerospace community was sitting in that congregation seeking to help these kids like Bridget. What we found in that youth group where Robert helped serve was that every single one of those kids was using drugs. Every single one. No matter the economics, no matter their background, no matter their family, every single one of those kids was using drugs. And it's hard not to notice. But then the next thing is you have to ask why. And so Bridget came to me one day and said, Brad, I, I have to admit this to you. I can't carry this anymore. And she had for three years been using cocaine, but was the largest elementary school drug dealer in that four-county area. And the police had been looking for her for years. There's a whole lot more to that story, but what we did is we formed a community alliance around that. And I began to ask questions around businesses and around the schools and around other things. And Bridges became the focus of so much of that and CBS came in and said, we'd like to do a television special called For Kids' Sake. And they did. And in a sanctuary of a church, those communities were transformed by grace and love. Grace and love. And made decisions around their role in the community that then transferred into a whole new life for me. So as those things unfold in in my later professional life, I had the incredible humbling privilege to travel for, with the White House on a task force around what places children and youth at risk, parenting as prevention, and international drug abuse and drug violence. 
It was through some of those folks, those folks with whom I traveled, one Dr. Peter Schmidt, who was the Undersurgeon General of the United States, who became a dear friend, who was the first one to come to me and say, I think you have a call to ministry. I poo-pooed it. We are making a ton of money. And we are doing some good things. And Peter came to me in the lobby of a Fort Lauderdale hotel. And we sat there at the counter, and that's the word he said to me. You're called. You're called to something more than this. And then that was affirmed again by Dr. Alvira Stern. And Alvira was the, a nationally known speaker and the director of the Bureau of Drug Abuse for the state of Illinois. Both of them saw something I didn't see. Both of them became something more than I could recognize. They were courageous enough to name it, share it, identify it, and call it a call to ministry. Then came the story that I've shared with you before. The story of holding a cocaine-addicted baby at Howard University Hospital. All these children were African-American. And I held this baby and talked about what it was that created this child, not just the mother and father, but the communities. And behind me were standing a group of United Methodist bishops. Al Gore was standing right here. John Kerry was standing right here. And we decided that we had to work together to create something more for even these children that were going to change the dynamics of education, community, drug abuse, and we had a role in that. And that turned into a conversation with another person who became a good friend, Bishop Cal McConnell, who then also said, you have a call to ministry. A whole lot more to all of those stories. But friends, what I will say, it was in and through those relationships, whether they came out of crisis or construction or youth ministry, consulting, business, politics, or the church that God moved. And I want you to hear this term. Moved through God's angels. And I don't mean Gabriel. I mean human. The word angel means messenger of God. That's what the word means. And here angel after angel after angel who came and they introduced me to a God I had never experienced before. They represented all manner of creation, whether rich or poor, the most saintly or most dangerous populations, or even, as I've shared, some of the most powerful in the country became those voices, God's angels, because God used them. Faith was born and flourished there, and because of it, I was able to respond to two deeply unethical business partners, but respond with accountability, love, and grace. We were able to respond to those at-risk kids in the Silicon Valley, some of whom were exceptionally wealthy and some who were exceptionally poor, with hope, accountability, and encouragement. The most profound place where I saw this was the work as pastor in Sunnyside in the Yakima Valley, where I've shared with you 50 of those children that I buried had single shots to the back of their head execution-style shootings because of the gang violence there, but a church who saw its role to emerge in the midst of that violence and give an alternative. And we watched incredible transformation happen in those kids' lives. I've shared before, the most poignant point was my last Sunday there. Here is the chief of police and his whole family sitting next to Hector Ramirez, the gang kingpin of the whole of the Yakima Valley, sitting there next to the chief of police with his whole family. His life had been transformed, not by me, not by Ed Ratter, the chief of police, not by the church, 
but by God's grace. And he saw something more. In each case, I saw a transformation similarly to what I had experienced in my life. It's those experiences that will always make me want to. And some of you ask me, why do I coach? Don't I have enough to do at church? No. There are kids at Taihe Middle School that needed a pastor on a cross-country team to coach. Someone who's lived the life that they've lived. We had an incredible group of coaches. 97 kids. In the last week, I've had calls from five of those families, particularly after, you know, one of them after the shooting. It's out of that, those experiences, both positive and challenging, that my faith in a wooing, loving, supporting God has grown. It is a faith that humbly now understands that God cares and is willing, and here's the word, friends, willing to save even someone like me. But it's also out of those experiences that I learned that I had a responsibility to be the steward of those gifts of grace, to create opportunities to deepen it, to pay it forward, to grow it and share it. And it, is, it was and is through those experiences that God created faith in me and continues to create faith in me. And now as I look at the church, even this church, what I want to see, you need to hear this, what I want to see is a group of people willing to do what God did for me. That's what I want to see in any church. Witnessing to this wooing God as it moves through the lives of those in and around the church and just ripples out through the community. God is the great steward, the caretaker of creation, the guider of those kinds of possibilities. And we become the earthly stewards, the servants, even the receivers of that grace so that we can share it with the next set. That brings us to this morning. And I want to share with you again, now that you know this story, I don't care about being the organizational developer in any church. The changes that I seek to make in a church or that I want to help us move toward have nothing to do with church growth or becoming stronger as an organization. All I care about, friends, the only thing that I care about is bringing a broader, healthier spectrum of love and grace beyond our doors, within here and beyond our doors. That's all I care about. I don't want to be an organizational developer. I've been there and done that. I don't care about that. What I care about is that we be the church. Angels in the community, no matter where or who or what. And that we create an environment here where everyone can be engaged in that. The changes that I seek to make here are not about organizations. They're about ministry. Let me close with this. It's a time of focusing on stewardship, on being caretakers. Last week you heard the phrase, saved by grace. I can't hear those words without tearing up. Now you know why. Saved by grace. You understand how much that means to me. I, even I, am saved by grace. And that grace has continued to emerge as it has lived through the miraculous people that God has placed in my life. And you know what? This sanctuary is now filled with them. You are those angels right now. Today you heard the word, you heard what Paul wrote to Timothy, and let these phrases 
carry us forward as caretakers of this grace, that we constantly remember each other in prayer, that we remember and honor those who have gone before us, that we fan into flame or rekindle the gift of God that is within us, and that we are not ever ashamed or timid to testify to this power that surrounds us. And now as we look ahead, you're going to get a pledge card in the mail. You are. And what we've done, Daniel Flahef has created this incredible image. Can we get that up the tree, John? This incredible image for us. Um, and it is a tree. I hope that you'll see. It is a tree that, um, no? Okay. It's a tree, and you're going to have a big poster of it. It's, it's a tree where you can see the deep roots. And for me, every time I look at those roots, I see a name, a person who has been part of that rootedness for me and the Holy Spirit working through them to nurture growth. And there's a thick trunk on this tree, and that's God and the power of the Holy Spirit that then allows us to grow and blossom. The, the leaves are all multicolored, kind of like fall. But the whole point of that is that we all have something to offer and give no matter who we are, what color we are, what backgrounds we are, no matter what. And guess what happened last night and yesterday and what's going to continue to happen throughout the fall is the wind is going to continue to blow and pull those leaves off of that tree. And why does the wind do that? So that the seeds that are there in the midst of those seed pods can blow into other places and plant and grow. And it is what we are, friends. We become those seeds also that can plant and grow. It's the tree. We are Aldersgate, a United Methodist Church built on that heritage and that history, growing in, growing in faith, love, health, and service.